Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Thanks very much. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Um, it's a great pleasure to have the opportunity to, to talk to you all in the beautiful surroundings of the Royal College. Um, as you were saying, I'm a specialist in 18th and 19th century literature um, with a particular interest in the new field of medical humanities. The term medical humanities first appeared in the pages of ISIS, a journal devoted to the history of science, medicine and civilization, in the 1940s. It's now widely used in the UK and North America, though it's one of those terms that um, it has a sort of wide currency, um, but people don't always know quite what it actually means. Um, the UK Association of Medical Humanities defines the area as a sustained interdisciplinary inquiry into aspects of medical practice, education and research, expressly concerned with the human side of medicine. This is a concise formulation, but one that points to a vast canvas of possible exploration and learning, one that includes subjects such as literature, philosophy, drama, the visual arts, film, music and dance. Researching and teaching in the English Department and the Centre for Medical Humanities at Aberdeen, I've developed a particular interest in the history of physician writing. Medical educators are increasingly asking students to use writing as a tool for enhancing self-awareness and reflective capacity. So journaling, critical incident reports, uh, parallel charts, that's writing about patients in non-medical language, have all been used with success in medical schools on both sides of the Atlantic and together form an example of the incorporation of the humanities into the medical curricula. Facilitators of reflective writing seminars often point to the example of the American physician writer William Carlos Williams, who, born in 1881, practiced medicine as a pediatrician in Rutherford, New Jersey, for more than 40 years. In his autobiography, Williams describes scribbling at poetry and prose in moments snatched from a busy life of consulting. Williams's writing bears witness to radical changes in medical profession in the 20th century and to the cultural authority science and technology held in the popular imagination of modern Americans. But to understand the value and possibilities of reflective writing for the medical students and practitioners of today, we need, I think, to look back to the autobiographies of earlier physician writers, and in particular to the late 18th and early 19th centuries, when writing about the self became identified with a new form of soul-searching. Um, the best-known um, literary practitioners of the genre from this period are um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, published his Confessions in 1770, um, William Wordsworth, who began his writing his long autobiographical poem, The Prelude, in 1798, and Thomas de Quincey, who published Confessions of an English Opium Eater in 1822. So I'll be focusing today on the autobiographical writings of the Edinburgh-trained um, American physician, Benjamin Rush. So Rush was a key figure in the American Enlightenment and the only medical signatory of the Declaration of Independence. He became professor of chemistry at the Philadelphia College of Medicine, the first medical school in colonial America, now the University of Pennsylvania, and was promoted to the, to the professor of the theory and practice of medicine in 1789. In 1812, the year before his death, he published Medical Inquiries and Observations Upon the Diseases of Mind, which became the standard American guide in, in its field and remained without a rival for many decades. The subject of these inquiries, Rush wrote to his friend John Adams on the 4th of November 1812, have hitherto been enveloped in mystery. I have endeavoured to bring them down to the level of all the other diseases of the human body 
and to show that the mind and body are moved by the same causes and subject to the same laws. The originality and soundness of many of Rush's ideas on this subject, together with his very readable presentation of them, have won high praise from later authorities. Um, and he's often known as the father of American psychiatry, and his silhouette appears on the seal of the American Psychiatric Association. Rush promoted many important causes, such as the abolition of slavery, education, prison reform, medical care for the poor, and the humane treatment of the insane. But while he had a magnetic personality and immense persuasive powers, he also had a remarkable capacity for making enemies. And in this paper, I'll be looking at his protracted feud with the English journalist, politician, and agriculturalist, William Cobbett. Um, their, their quarrel centered on Rush's treatment of yellow fever during the epidemics in Philadelphia of 1793 and 1797. So I'll be exploring some of the possible links between this feud and Rush's autobiography, Travels Through Life, that he composed around 1800, where he reflects upon um, and defends his medical theories and practice. Um, first, I want to give us a little background, sort of back, but to say a bit about the, um, the yellow fever epidemic. So on the 21st of August 1793, Rush wrote to his wife Julia, then staying in Princeton, New Jersey, to inform her of the outbreak in their home city of Philadelphia, of an as yet unidentified malignant fever, which had already carried off 12 persons. It's supposed, he writes, to have been produced by some damaged coffee, which had putrefied on one of the wharfs near the middle of the Water Street district. In one case, it killed in 12 hours. The rushes weren't to be reunited until the 13th of November, at the end of what has been described as the most appalling collective disaster that has ever, over, that has ever overta overtaken an American city the yellow fever epidemic of 1793. Sending the rest of his family, except his mother and sister Rebecca, to join Julia in Princeton, Rush would stay on to fulfill his medical responsibilities in the plague-ridden city, sometimes seeing more than 100 patients a day. More than one-third of Philadelphia's population of 50,000 would flee the city in 1793 to take refuge in the surrounding countryside. Before the plague was over, more than 4,000 lives had been lost, Doctors were amongst those who took flight to escape the pestilence, and ten of, those who, ten of those who remained died of the disease. So after illness and defection, only three physicians, including Rush, were available to treat no fewer than 6,000 cases. Philadelphia was the medical capital of the newly invented United States of America. Its physicians the best to be had, but the medical science of the time could provide no sure grounds to distinguish between competing theories of cause. Most of the Philadelphia doctors thought that the yellow fever was imported from the West Indies, and it would be more than another century before the mosquito would be identified as its vector and filterable virus as its agent. Rush mistakenly believed that the disease was primarily of local origin, arising from a foulness in the atmosphere. Looking through medical treatises for clues as to how to treat the epidemic, he found what he was soon satisfied were the correct methods for cure, vigorous bleeding and purging, and he publicised his view of the necessity of bleeding in yellow fever in an open letter to the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, which was printed in the Federal Gazette on the 12th of September, 1793. I found bleeding to be useful, not only in cases where the pulse was full and quick, but where it was slow and tense. I have bled in one case where the pulse beat only 48 strokes in a minute and recovered my patient by it. The pulse became more full and more frequent after it. 
I have fed twice in many and in one acute case four times with the happiest effects. I consider intrepidity in the use of the lancet at present to be as necessary to, as it is in the use of mercury and jalap in this insidious and ferocious disease. When Rush's methods were attacked as more dangerous than the yellow fever itself, he rose to his own defence in lengthy conversations and letters, as well as communications to the press. Meanwhile, he contracted the fever himself and dramatically took his own remedies. Leaving his bed the moment he was able, he continued in a feeble convalescent state to fight the plague and rival doctors, whom he viewed as no less murderous as than, they, as they, than they did him. Never did I witness such deep and universal distress, he wrote to his sister Rachel Rush Montgomery on the 18th of September, 1793. His own illness, he added, had in part been occasioned by a last look from a beloved friend, Miles Mervyn, who had been killed by a French physician and whose frantic cries to Rush in his last moments of help, help, the Amer American physician could never forget. Throughout the ordeal, Rush managed to write to his wife, Julia, nearly every day, and his letters to her comprise a remarkable eyewitness account of the <coughs> epidemic. The literary historian William L. L. Hedges describes them as one of the treasures of early American literature. Rush's published narrative of the epidemic and account of the bilious remitting yellow fever as it appeared in Philadelphia in the year 1793 includes exhaustive and revealing analysis of his motives and results in drawing blood, and a personal final chapter when he describes the state of his body and mind during his intercourse with the sick in the city's late epidemic. Responding in part to Rush's heroic self-image in his account of the yellow fever, the English Quaker physician J.C. Letsom would compare Rush, who was a friend, um, would compare his friend's courage during the epidemic to Hippo Hippocrates during the plague in Athens. Contemplate this illustrious professor emerging from the prostration of strength in induced by this fever. His aged mother dying, his sister Rebecca a corpse, his pupils dead around him flying from house to house wherever infection is raging. At home, his apartments filled with supplicants, diseased and dying. Death almost everywhere stalking over the victims from the raging pestilence. He, nevertheless, braves the uplifted and poisoned dark, emulating the father of the Apollonian art at the plague of Athens and the descendants of Aesculapius at the siege of Troy. Many, though, thought Rush almost a fanatic on the advantages of phlebotomy and vigorously opposed his methods in letters and pamphlets. The return of the yellow fever to Philadelphia in 1797 saw the pillaring of Rush by Cobbett as a Sangredo, meaning um, a physician who resembles the fictional Dr. Sangredo of Valladolid from Anna, Anna René Lesage's picaresque novel Gil Blas. In Lesage's novel, Dr. Sangredo's sole remedies are bleeding and the drinking of hot water. On the 16th of October 1797, Cobbett printed in his newspaper Porcupine's Gazette a passage from Gil Blas in which Dr. Sangredo is quoted as saying, after drawing six porringers of blood from a patient and ordering six more to be drawn in three hours, it's a gross error to suppose that blood is necessary to the conservation of life. Um, and Sangredo would become um, Cobbett's favourite name for Rush. Um, and we can see um, the, something of the satiric potential of Lesage's character um, in the British artist James Gilray's print, Dr. Sangredo curing John Bull of repletion, um, which is from 1803. Um, in this print, Gilray depicts one of his favourite targets, Henry Addington, British Prime Minister from 1801 to 1804, um, bleeding John Bull, Great Britain. Addington, the son of physician, was known as the doctor, 
Um, so here, Gilray's wittily comparing the effectiveness of Addington's policies to Dr. Sangredo's, um, and to the side stands um, the enemy Napoleon, um, ready to benefit from a weakened Great Britain. Um, and Gilray may well have been um, inspired by Cobbett's use of, of Lesage's character in Porcupine's Gazette um, when he was um, thinking about this. So Cobbett is best known today for the persistent and determined verbal guerrilla warfare that he waged against the British government during the first decade of the 19th century in his weekly political register. Yet this leading radical writer in monarchical Britain began his literary career as a high Tory pamphleteer and journalist in Republican America using the pseudonym of Peter Porcupine. Cobbett had arrived in the United States in 1792 expecting to find a land of liberty, virtue, and simplicity. Instead, he discovered a wide gap between the America of his imagination and the America of his experience. The United States, he informed an English friend, was exactly the contrary of what I expected, expected it. The land is bad, rocky, the seasons are detestable, the people are worthy of the country, a cheating, sly, roguish gang. Cobbett's initial impressions hardened into an enduring sense of anger and betrayal. Connecting the personal with the political, he rooted his negative reaction to the country in its republican form of government. As David A. Wilson puts it, in the United States, Cobbett found corruption, self-aggrandizement, and the lust for power masquerading under the banner, banner of liberty. Early in 1797, Cobbett had publicly castigated Rush's eulogium on David Rittenhouse, which had been delivered before the Philosophical Society Philadelphia on 17th December 1796, as silly, sans-colottish stuff. Um, sans-colottish there is meaning favouring sans-colottic or republican principles um, from the French sans-colotte um, without knee breeches. With the return of the yellow fever, to, yellow fever to Philadelphia in 1797, and Rush's pronouncements on the efficacy of bleeding... A series of squibs and parodies on the preposterous puffs of the Philadelphia phlebotomist began to appear in Cobbett's Porcupine Gazette in mid-September 1797. On 24th October, for example, under the caption, Rush and his patients, Cobbett inserted the following notice. Wanted by a physician, an entire new set of patients, his old ones having given him the slip. Also, a slower method of dispatching them than that of phlebotomy, the celerity of which doesn't give time for making out a bill. Cobbett's attacks increased entrenchancy after Rush issued a notice that he was suing Cobbett for libel. Rush versus Cobbett came on before the Supreme Court of Philadelphia in December 1797, but for one reason or another was delayed for two years. When the case was eventually tried in early December 1799, the jury brought in a verdict in favour of the plaintiff Rush of $5,000. Upon learning of the judgment, Cobbett wrote to his close friend Edward Thornton, a member of the staff of the British Legation, in December 1799, Nothing provokes me but the thought of such a whining Republican rascal putting the $5,000 in his pocket. Why? The pauper never saw so much money before, not even in his mint. Um, Rush had been made um, treasurer of the US Mint in 1797. Mr Liston hinted something about softening Rush. I hope in God it will not be attempted. I was sooner begged my bread from door to door. The villain shall not enjoy his prize in peace. I shall find the means of reaching him wherever I may. In a farewell number of Porcupine's Gazette issued at New York on the 13th of January 1800, Cobbett began to make good this threat. 
Declaring that his sole motive had been to expose the menace to the Philadelphians' lives that, they lay, that, that, that lay beneath Russia's sleek-headed, saint-looking appearance, Cobbett capitalised on a recent event much in the public mind. Quoting an official medical report, he pointed out that on the very day when a Philadelphia court had imposed damages of £5,000 upon Cobbett for opposing Russia's depleting methods, George Washington had expired at Mount Vernon under treatment in precise conformity to the practice of Rush. On that day, he says, the, the, the victory of Rush and of death was complete. Shortly afterwards, Rush, uh, sorry, Cobbett began a periodical work devoted exclusively to Rush, the Rushites, and their iniquities. The first Rush light appeared in the middle of February and included a devastatingly comic biographical sketch of Rush. Cobbett then continued to exact his revenge on Rush in the second, in the se um, to, his, to exact his revenge on Rush in the Rush Light numbers two to five, published between February and April of 1800. In the second number, for example, Cobbett presents Rush as an enthusiast in, in quest for illumination from old sources. Rush tells us, in the account of the Yellow Fever of 1793, that he was much struck with certain passages of an old manuscript account of the Yellow Fever in Virginia in 1741 but particularly with one in which the writer observed that an ill-timed scrupulous, scrupulousness about the weakness of the body was of bad consequence, and he declared that he had given a purge when the pulse was so low that it could hardly be felt. Reading on, Rush says he came to the following words, This evacuation must be procured by lenative collagoque purges. Here, says he, I paused. A new train of ideas suddenly broke in upon my mind. He then mentions his former scruples, but, as he, Dr. Mitchell, the old man of the manuscript, in a moment dissipated my ignorance and my fears. I adopted his theory and practice, and without any trial, resolved to follow them. Having in a moment formed this resolution, he very soon proceeded to put it in practice. The collagoque purge that he fixed upon was composed of 10 grains of calomel and 16 of jalap. To this purge, which the inventor sometimes called the Samson of medicine, was added copious bloodletting, a most powerful cooperator. So here what Cobb is doing is, is turning Rush's own publication against him, um, italicising some words, you know, suddenly, in a moment, resolved. These aren't italicised in, in, um, in the Rush's original. Um, and then Cobb is adding some comments in, in parentheses without any trial to portray the American physician as impetuous, uncritical, and self-righteous. He then goes on to examine Rush's claims of cures by depletion and to correlate them with the daily bills of mortality in the city, showing that the more the physicians bled, the more the victims died. So the feud between Rush and Cobbett only ended with Cobbett's departure for England on the 1st of June. Um, another trial was coming up in which Cobbett knew he would be the loser. But Cobbett continued to be known as the porcupine on his return to Britain. Um, so he, here um, we see him in an 1801 print by De Wilde um, as, a, as, as a porcupine, as a porcupine monster. Um, a naked trunk, his naked trunk terminates in two scaly serpents crouching on the floor of a cave. Um, spikes intending for the quills of a porcupine, see so irradiating from behind his head and shoulders. Um, this print was, was published in the Tory journal The Satirist in 1808, um, and it illustrates an article entitled Strictures on Cobbett. Um, and the prince attacking Cobbett for changing his views um, in his political register on Francis Baudet and John Horne took. Um, porcupine quills, quills dart towards an opening in a cave through which a sun-inscribed monthly meteor directs its rays back at Cobbett, and he flinches in terror, holding up a pen. 
um, and the quills fly towards the monthly meteor, but on reaching the opening of the cave, fall back. Um, the key thing, I think, is that the quills are inscribed rage, lies, vulgar abuse, lies, disappointment, malice. So with the departure of Cobbett for England, Rush turned to writing his autobiography. According to L.H. Butterfield, um, the editor of the two-volume selected uh, Letters of Rush, the self-justifying tone sometimes apparent in Rush's travels through life must be partly attributed to the wounds inflicted by the barbed quills of Peter Porcupine. And certainly the controversy over bloodletting and the quarrel with Cobbett feature prominently. This is from Travels, Travels Through Life, his, his autobiography. To the year 1797, the yellow fever became again epidemic. Soon after the fever appeared, Dr. Griffiths published without his name some plain and sensible directions for the treatment of the fever. This publication was ascribed to me in Fenno's paper and a most virulent invective against me connected with it. It was soon afterwards followed by torrents of abuse in a paper conducted by one Cobbett, an English alien who then resided in Philadelphia. The publications in these two daily papers were continued for nearly six weeks against my practice and character, and particularly against my political principles, which were those of the Federal Republic of our country. But Rush's autobiography is not only a defence of his medical theory and practice, it's also an account of the education, experience and ways of thinking that has made him a radical amongst the doctors. It's about the anxiety of influence, as well as public quarrels. Rush has been trained by John Redman in Philadelphia to honour the clinical observations and insights of Thomas Sydenham, Sydenham and to accept Herman Boerhaave's theoretical system. But as a student at the University of Edinburgh from 1768 to 1766 to 1768, he enthusiastically shifted his allegiance to Cullen. The conceptual foundation of Rush's medical practice and teaching in Philadelphia drew on Cullen's system and that of John Brown, who studied under Cullen with Rush in Edinburgh. But after taking up the chair of the theory and practice of medicine at the College of Philadelphia on the death of his early mentor, John Morgan, in 1789, Rush began to modify his theoretical focus. His medical experiences with the yellow fever epidemic of 1793 forced further reconsideration of his views of basic physiological processes. Whereas Cullen had made the nervous system, its over-energetic or under-energetic reactions, the centre of his theory, Rush narrowed his focus to the responsiveness of the arterial system. Using fever as his paradigm, Rush argued that a state of motion, or what he called the convulsive or irregular action in the arteries, was the sole cause of disease. Since the majority of illnesses appear to him to arise from increased tension, he logically, then logically but over-enthusiastically, applied bleeding and other depleting remedies to his patients. So the self-justifying tone of travels through life may be as much a product of Rush's modification or repudiation of Cullen as of his feud with Cobbett. So I'd like now to um, look at Rush's description of Cullen in his letters and in the journal that he wrote while a student at Edinburgh University and a little bit at the correspondence between the two men after Rush's return to Philadelphia. And I'll then turn back to um, Rush's travels through life. So Rush arrived in Scotland with letters of recommendation from Morgan, 
who studied at Ed uh, medicine in Edinburgh, earning his MD in 1763. On 16th November 1766, Rush wrote to Morgan of the particular hospitality he'd received from Cullen. Dr. Cullen speaks highly of the medical schools you founded in Philadelphia, he reports, and imagines that your fame in America will be more durable than his own in Europe. Um, Morgan had founded um, the first medical school in the American colonies at the College of Philadelphia in 1765. So having assured Morgan that he was assiduously following the curriculum at Edinburgh proposed by his early mentor, Rush asked for a report on the success of Morgan's own lectures at the College of Philadelphia. Methinks I see the place of my nativity, he declares, becoming the Edinburgh of America. The student now no longer tears himself from every tender engagement and braves the, the danger of the sea in pursuit of knowledge in a foreign country. Methinks I see the streets of Philadelphia crowded with sons of science whom your fame has brought from the remotest confines of the continent. By the middle of his second year at Edinburgh, Rush could envisage his own role in the westward course of medical knowledge. I'm attending Dr. Cullen's lectures a second time, he writes to Morgan on the 20th of January 1768 and I'm daily surprised with some new discovery from him. His lectures upon the nervous system and upon pathology are worth their weight in gold. I'm in hopes I'm, we shall be able to transplant most of his doctrines to Philadelphia. Rush would return to Philadelphia at the end of his medical studies to Europe with a letter of recommendation from Cullen to Morgan. And like Cullen, Rush would begin his academic career by teaching chemistry, and he would also self-consciously model his own professional conduct on that of Cullen. At the end of his period of study in Edinburgh, Rush wrote an account of the university's medical school in his Scottish journal, so called Scottish journal, which is now held in the Lilly Library at Indiana University. The high reputation of the school, he observes, is chiefly owing to the extraordinary abilities and learning of Dr. Cullen. It's scarcely possible to do justice to this great man's character, either as a scholar, a physician, or a man. Rush then goes on to describe Cullen's turn for system, his habit of early rising, um, his punctuality, and his vivacity, good sense, and good humour. There's only one paragraph of criticism. There is one thing, however, wanting in Dr Cullen to constitute his character a complete one, viz. a regard to religion. I'm not fully acquainted with Dr Cullen's principles, nor do I believe he has formed any irregular system for himself. He believes in the immateriality and immortality of the soul, this I've heard him frequently declare in his lectures, but with regard to revealed religion, he professes himself a sceptic, although he never was heard to say anything dis disrespectful against it in a public manner. According to Reginald Passmore, <coughs> Cullen's views on religion were probably similar to those of his friend David Hume, a notorious sceptic, but unlike Hume, he kept quiet and didn't publicise them in books. Rush, however, brought an evangelical experience to his medical training and career, and found Cullen disappointingly lukewarm in the cause of religion. Having come under the sway of the Great Awakening before entering the Presbyterian College of New Jersey under President Samuel Davies, Rush would find particular pleasure and in instruction in the works of James Beattie, writing to James Kidd, the newly appointed Professor of Oriental Languages at Marshall College Aberdeen on the 13th of May 1794, I cannot think of Beattie without fancying that I see Mr Hume prostrate at his feet. He was, the giant who, he was the David who slew that giant of infidelity. Rush's view of, Be of Beattie as a slayer of Hume recalls Joshua Reynolds' portrait of the philosopher-poet in 1774, um, The Triumph of, of Triumph Over Truth. 
Um, and in this allegorical picture, Beattie stands um, in his Doctor of Laws gown with his book of philosophy, The Essay of Truth, under his arm. Um, near him is an angel with the sun on his breast who represents truth. And meanwhile, Beattie's enemies, Voltaire and Hume, are confounded and thrust into the darkness. Rashmi have aligned himself philosophically with Beattie, but he appears from his journal to have been enchanted by Hume when he met him at the home of Alexander Dick on the 29th of November, 1766. Rush also pays tribute in his journal to his private friendship with Cullen, concluding his account of his Edinburgh teachers with the observation, I never asked a favour from Dr Cullen, which I attained, but which I obtained it. In a word, I loved him like a father, and if at present I entertain any hopes of being eminent in my profession, I owe them entirely to this great man. So the extent correspondence between Cullen and Rush follows um, Rush's, Rush, following Rush's return to America spans the period 1783-1788. Welcoming the ending of hostilities between the United States and Great Britain, Cullen wrote to Rush on the 28th of June 1783, though I'm confident that you and I have never been at war with one another, I must own that I am happy in the view of my having a free and friendly intercourse with many persons in America whom I've always esteemed and loved. And in a letter of 16th of September 1783, Rush replies... The events of the late war have not lessened my attachment to my venerable master. The members of the Republic of Science all belong to the same family. What has physic to do with taxation or independence? And he goes on to say, one of the severest taxes paid by our profession during the war was occasioned by the want of a regular supply of books from Europe, by which means we are eight years behind you in everything. Your first lines was almost the only new work that was smuggled into the country. Fortunately, it fell into my hands. I took the liberty of writing a preface to it, of publishing it during the war. The American edition had a rapid sale and a general circulation throughout the United States. It was read with peculiar attention by the physicians and surgeons of our army, and in a few years regulated, in many things, the practice of our hospitals. Thus, sir, you see, you have had a hand in the revolution by contributing indirectly to save the lives of the officers and soldiers of the American army. In the preface to the Philadelphia reprint of the first two volumes of Cullen's four volumes, First Lines of the Practice of Physic, Rush states that the author of the present work is too well known in the literary world to stand in need of much commendation. He has produced a revolution in medicine. The language and tone of the preface recalls Rush's earlier letters from Edinburgh to his friends in America when he claimed that the present era would be famous for a revolution in physic. But in the wake of the American Revolution, Rush sought not merely to champion the discoveries of his illustrious master, but also to develop his own ideas of the causes and cures of diseases. In a telling anecdote, David Ramsey, the American physician and historian from Charleston, South Carolina, would describe visiting Rush in his study in the summer of 1789. According to Ramsey, Rush observed that he was preparing for his next course of lectures in self-defense, that the system of Cullen was tottering, that Dr. John Brown had brought forward some new and luminous principles of medicine, but they were mixed with others which were extravagant, that he saw a gleam of light before him leading to a more simple and consistent system of medicine than the world had yet seen, and pointed out some of its leading features. Significantly, Rush would warn against too great a regard for Cullen's authority when he delivered his eulogium on Cullen, to Cullen before the College of Physicians of Philadelphia on 9th of July, 1790. To believe in great men, he proclaimed, is often as great an obstacle to the progress of knowledge as to believe in witches and conjurers. In Travels Through Life, Rush pays tribute to his Edinburgh teachers. 
The public lectures and private conversations with professors, he says, not only gave me new ideas, many new ideas, but opened my mind so to enable me to profit by reading an, reading an observation. But he gives far more space to the process by which he abandoned Cullen's system. The weight of Dr. Cullen's name depressed me every time I ventured to admit an idea that militated against his system. At length, a few rays of light broke in upon my mind upon several diseases. These were communicated first to my pupils in my lectures and afterwards to the public in a volume of observations and inquiries in the year 1789. The leading principle of my system was intruded upon me suddenly while I was walking the floor of my study. It was like a ferment introduced into my mind. It produced in it a constant endless succession of decompositions and new arrangements of facts and ideas upon medical subjects. So Rush here is portraying his repudiation of Cullen, his change of mind, as an intuitive experience or flash of insights that comes like a moment of conversion. Such instances in the autobiography recall the tradition of, Puritan, of the Puritan conversion narratives, um, kind of works such as John Bunyan's Grace Abandoned to the Chief of Sinners. <clears throat> but his reflections on the weight of Dr. Cullen's name and his later comment on the passivity with which he f at first held his new opinions also points towards um, a, new, a new inwardness that we see in, in romantic autobiography. In the sections of the autobiography when Rush um, describes a controversy over bloodletting, his style becomes closer to the, to the sermon or the Jeremiad. Of his actions in 1793, for example, he writes, I considered myself as destined to the hearse, an ambition, of course, held forth no prospects of future advantages from a victory in a contest with my brethren. No citizens of Philadelphia, it was for your sakes only I opposed their errors and prejudices. And to this opposition, many thousand people owed their lives. In reviewing my conduct upon this occasion, I've examined its motives with leisure and severity and have not been able to incriminate, incrimin, incriminate myself. I condemn myself only for some harsh expressions which I made use of in speaking of their conduct and practice. The occasion will palliate if it doesn't justify them. I was contending with the most criminal ignorance and the object of the contest was the preservation of a city. And now, um, Rush was an admirer of the extemporary preaching of the Scottish Presbyterian minister, John Witherspoon, who accepted an invitation in 1768, partly negotiated through Rush to come to the American colonies and assume the presidency of the College of New Jersey, subsequently Princeton University. So just as Witherspoon employed the orator his oratorical and literary powers to persuade and exhort in his sermons, so Rush exploits the language of the pulpit to warn against criminal ignorance amongst medical practitioners and others and to, to defend his own theory and practice. The style of Rush's autobiography also recalls the pamphlets and newspaper articles of Cotton Mather and other Puritan clergy, um, clergymen during Boston's smallpox epidemic of 1721. The smallpox epidemic um, of 71 was, was, was Boston's sixth major smallpox epidemic <coughs> since its founding in 1630. And when Martha and other Puritan cl clergymen promoted the experimental procedure of vaccination, injecting a small dose of the smallpox virus in the skin to stimulate the body's immune response, controversy erupted over its risks, efficacy, and morality. 
um, and each side published pamphlets and newspaper articles. Um, and the debate becomes very personal and biting, with each side accusing the other of bias and falsification. So I think the, the sort of the the, um, the pamphlets that, that come out in the in the, the in the 721 Boston epidemic are very similar to the kind of writing that you get in the in the, in, in the yellow fever one. Um, each you know each side attacking each other, um, and, and I'm interested. It's um, some work which I'm um, sort of in. The, still to do really but I'm interested in in, um, in the connection particularly between Martha's writing and, and Russia's writing and the intermingling uh, that, we, that you find there of um, medical and uh, theological issues in his eulogy on Russia the Charleston physician David Ramsey said that upon the role Rush assigned to the Lancet his fame as an improver of medicine in a great degree must eventually rest this comment is prophetic in ways its author would not have intended. The American psychiatrist Leon Eisenberg, for example, pays tribute to Russia's medical inquiries and observations upon the diseases of mind, but tells the story of Russia's actions in the yellow fever epidemics as a cautionary tale. Convinced of the correctness of his theory and lacking means for the systematic study of treatment outcomes, he writes, Russia attributed each new instance of improvement to the efficacy of his treatment, and each new death in spite of it, to the severity of the disease. His autobiographical writing gives us insight into the processes of thought by which he came to his decisions. So literature can, can thus, I think, enhance our understanding of the public and personal conflicts at the heart of medical practice. Um, and it's something I kind of want to look at further as a, in a sort of project um, linking literature with um, medical ethics, or to looking at the place of, of literature in medical ethics. So thanks very much. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk slash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.